Welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads The Book of Dust La Belle Sauvage Episode 6 Chapters 15 through 17 I am one of your hosts, Eliana And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe And holy crap, is it chapters 15 through 17? These are some chunky ones we're getting into Things are heating up on the river <sighs> Yes, they are. They are. They are heating up. Uh, we are getting quite swept away. There's a lot of things going on. Uh, the chapters are, of course, chapter 15, the potting shed, chapter 16, the pharmacy, and chapter 17, Pilgrim's Tower. Yes, and a reminder that this is basically spoilers all of the main books. That is Northern Lights or The Golden Compass if you're in the U.S. Haha. <laughs> the Subtle Knife. The Amber Spyglass, and we are also going to spoil from this book through the end of the book. If you're listening to this episode, it's likely that you've listened to the whole book or read the whole book by now. So catch up, come back, and we may sometimes hint at things, but overall, uh, we will reference the Secret Commonwealth in our discussion at the end of the episode. But all novellas are fair game. The novellas, I don't think, are that important, in my opinion, in the big, big grand scheme of things. Just some fun hints laid around and things to compile. So if you're okay with being spoiled on that, nothing big, just some hints. Yeah, the novellas, I think, shouldn't ruin your experience at all. One of them is literally unrelated to the story entirely. <laughs> it is about Lee Scoresby and his history. It's quite charming, yes. and we do have a Patreon episode about both of those novellas. Of uh, We have a Patreon episode about Once Upon a Time in the North regarding Leon York and Lyra's Oxford. Yeah, we also, also, also are about to have an episode on another novella that Pullman has published. Actually, the most recent novella he published, which is Serpentine. Serpentine's really exciting. It explores Lyra taking an adventure back to Trollisund, uh with Jordan College kind of paying her own way as she goes and doing some grunt work. And it's a really interesting, really short read. It's like 25, 30 pages. I think it's a half an hour on audiobook. Our friends Warren and Pete, I want to say, told me this one. So quick read. And I'm really excited about that because we are getting this one out just in time for eventually Pullman to publish The Collectors as a, a real yeah. book. So I know Eliana will get caught up with that and we'll probably talk about that eventually too. But Serpentine first. Yeah, and then we can talk about Kate Bush. Kate Bush. Lyra. Lyra. <sighs> well, look out for that episode before the end of the month. That'll be out before the end of February 2021 here. And these chapters are heavy. We are, uh, the water's coming down, the rain's pouring down. Mary Hillary Duff out here coming clean, you know. Yes. Uh, Oh my god, I heard the most devastating news, so I'm going to take us in a different adventure, that the oh, Lizzie yeah. McGuire follow-up sequel series has is dead in the water. <gasps> what? I no. that's what I That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard from our friend uh, Maddie, Maddie K. Ray, that Hilary Duff wanted Lizzie to be bisexual, and Disney was not cool with that. I mean, her and Randa totally- anyway. Oh my god, uh, yeah, so I've been better than Gordo. Anyway. Wait. Are we lit? Anyways. Or are you Gordo? Are you. <sighs> I'm so- a red. I'm a- she's like half Filipina or something in real life. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's reset. Let's rewind ourselves here. You know, let's do a oh. reboot. 
So the next three chapters that we're going to talk about here, 15, 16, 17, are kind of like about sex, death, and rock and roll, and thunder and lightning. Uh, they are. They are. Rock and roll debatable, but everything else, I mean, yes. Definitely sex and death. There's a lot of sex and oh, death yeah. going on. Through the words, between the lines, that's interesting. Not between the sheets. No it's not between the sheets. It is in a shed, though. Oh, well, let's shed some light on that and start <laughs> off with Chapter 15, The Potting Shed, Eliana. Yeah, so we <laughs> are going to jump into it. This uh, is, of course, a nexus between the two parts of the book. And Malcolm heads to the Priory to check on Mr. Taphouse to see if he's feeling better and is surprised to find instead a quiet, disdainful Alice needing dough there. Sister Fenella, who looks unwell, is resting with Lyra and tells Malcolm that Alice had been helping them. She leads Malcolm to say hi to Lyra, who's snoozing into her little kitten demon. And Lyra wakes and howls louder than hell, and Asta, careful to avoid Lyra, scoops down as a cat and shakes Pan. Oh, everybody laughs, even Lyra. She's like, okay, haha. And then Alice rolls her eyes, and she's like, all right, you little flirts. And Sister Fenella lets Malcolm help prepare the bottle for Lyra. He wants to tell Alice about Mrs. Coulter and what he learned the day before, but instead asks Sister Fenella how Mr. Taphouse is feeling. So this scene always kind of struck me strange. I, I don't know why. It just always rubbed me the wrong way since my first time reading it of like, <sighs> Alice calling Lyra a little flirt. I'm like, she's a baby. Everyone chill out. Like, and, and, and I think what's weirder to me is like, I know that there are people who do things and make jokes like that, right? About babies in real life. And I'm like, everyone needs to chill. They're babies. That's it. That's true. I feel like there might be some hidden resentment behind the statement right now about, you know, the books, Eliana. Uh, no, even before, even before okay. that, I, I just always am like, what the fuck? <laughs> but the resentment is also there, too. I'm just here to parse out the pull motions. Oh, oh yeah. my God. There's a lot of pull motions going on in this chapter. <sighs> you know, Mr. Taphouse hasn't come back. And it wasn't weird last chapter that he was out because he's just like an older dude and, you know, he has a, a physical labor job. My dad is a physical laborer, so, like, I think about that sometimes. Like, man, when's your body going to quit? Mine feels like it's done right now, so I don't know. How's yep. he faring? Uh, but they think Tap House is okay. They're like, yeah, yeah, he'll be back soon enough. Uh, Malcolm's like, well, I can help in Tap House's place. And Alice is like, ah, okay. Hmm. Malcolm can't help but notice. Fenella doesn't look too good uh, and just as he notices it sister Fenella actually faints oh. malcolm's able to catch lyra and alice catches Fenella. so we're gonna come back to sister Fenella quite a bit this episode and i don't remember does mr Taphouse die also i don't think we ever know <sighs> i i think he does i mean i think he's probably dead right now shit i think bon v probably killed him but <gasps> <sighs> God! Uh, that's crazy. I'm sorry. That's a little wild. Uh, I just feel... I got that feeling. Hold on. Let me just make sure. He was a carpenter is how it's worded. I'm guessing he's dead. It doesn't say anything. No. I mean, he's obviously dead by the next book, right? Because he's well, yeah, of he's an dead. age. But I'm like, did he die in this flood? He probably is dead during the... Well, I don't know because he probably... Maybe he outlived us all. I hope so. <sighs> I mean, he built some sturdy shit, is all he, I'm saying. Yeah, I guess he could have built himself something. Yeah. 
Anyway, it's just, uh, it, it occurred to me, I was like, oh my god, <laughs> what happened to Mr. But Tap I House? think that's the connection, right? That, like, we don't hear from Tap House, and things are awkward, and then Fenella's not well any either, and then, like, he's like, we have to get her help, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we will, don't worry, Malcolm, and then no one gets her help, and then she's dead. Yeah. I mean, there's some number of factors that were conspiring against Sister Fenella. But one yep. of them is not Malcolm, who runs to get help, handing over Lyra, and is unable to find Sister Benedicta. So he runs into a younger sister, Katerina. And Katerina says that she'll go get Benedicta and help, and runs off. And then Alice thinks, like, I think this might be pneumonia, because my gran had it. And then Lyra's like, nah, sucks on her bottle, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Charmed life, except for everything else that happens in her life. Malcolm questions her ability, though, to take care of a baby, and Alice is like... Well, I question your fucking... No, she doesn't say that. Uh, she reveals she has two younger sisters. They start up more milk for Lyra, and Benedicta and Katarina arrive. Benedicta directs Katarina to take Lyra, but Alice refuses to let her. She's like, Lyra just settled it. Malcolm notices that Alice is kind of giving Katarina her death glare. You know, she's like, uh-uh, bitch, don't play. Uh, she watches Katarina's pug demon hide behind her legs in submission, which I thought was interesting. Not the only time... Katarina's demon shows submission in this chapter. Mm-hmm. I think about that. I read that scene. It's like, that's that's real interesting. We'll get to that. Mel offers yeah. to go get the doctor, but Sister Benedicta says that they have it well taken care of. Um, and I'm like, do you? She dismisses Malcolm and Alice, and Malcolm is suspicious of her behavior about Lyra. It's such a bummer they didn't call a doctor. I don't know if the doctor could have done much for the pneumonia necessarily, but uh, and I think it could be because of fiscal reasons, right? Like healthcare is expensive, they're poor. Maybe it's faith-based. I know that that also comes into things like, no, we'll just pray it away. Uh, that can sometimes affect those decisions. But had they called a doctor, maybe the doctor would be like, hey, you know, the weather's bad. You guys should get home and make sure you have yourselves taken care of and are at a high ground. You know, this is a small town. So like he could have just been like, the priory is pretty low. So you might want to get to higher ground just in case for the night. Uh, and, of course, maybe the doctor's a blathering idiot and he doesn't know. And maybe he's like, no, doo-doo, nothing's happening. I believe the weather. Who knows? But at least, yeah. like, attention would have been on them. And I just am like, oh, it's so sad. What's to come here? The death of the nuns. It goes either way. And I think it's, like, it is really strange to me that they're not, like, let's get a doctor. Like, Sister Fenella's super old. That's been hammered home to us throughout, like, these several past few chapters, right? That they're, I'm like, Sister Benedicta, what the fuck are you going to do? And yeah, maybe Sister Benedicta used to be a nurse. We don't know, to be honest, but I don't know. And it's it's interesting, like, it sucks. It feels like, every, again, everything was conspiring against Sister Fenella. If she wasn't going to die of, like, this illness, like, the flood was going to take yeah. her, which it did. And kind of be like, what if it was so serious that they would have been taken to the hospital? And then they would have all been alive, right? Because a lot of the people who are surviving at the moment, we find out at the end of these chapters, are taking refuge there. But I think it's most likely they probably would have called a doctor to visit and, and done that. Like, that was probably popular in this sort of town versus going to the hospital. But yeah. And to be honest with the weather, the the calamity that has been happening in the United calamity States Gannon. lately- Calamity Cannon. Uh, <laughs> Girls Gone Calamity Cannon, if you will. Oh, wait. I would do that. Okay. You would. If you're listening to this in the year 2021, our Lord, Savior, Metatron, uh, you'll know that there's been some 
climate calamity going on across the United States. The South had some very crazy, very crazy cold weather that does not happen often there, and the infrastructure wasn't great. And, like, as someone on the East Coast who sees this even with, like, you know, being used to snow, it's interesting to watch the infrastructure here, right, and that these nuns and where they live, they live kind of off the grid. They're not in the path of where they can get help. Uh, yeah. We we tried to order a repair person on a dishwasher, and it, it's it's been a bit, you know, like we're not getting service because things aren't moving. I work in supply chain. Things are not moving because they're getting held up in different hubs across the country because of overflow, because people don't have power, people don't have mm-hmm. water, people don't have anything right now, so... Yeah. It's interesting to watch infrastructure fail in the government that probably should have upkept these little places like Wolverton and, like, I mean, all of this area that flooded. They should have upkept the dam a little yeah, better. They, that's true. They didn't do that. There's a lot of things that... And they have all these government officials fucking visiting this place, right? The past few chapters, mm-hmm. and they didn't do shit. They don't have a library. And... yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of negligence going on there, and um, yes, thank you, thank you for telling people when this episode is recorded. I am excited for the day. We'll we'll be dead, of course, but that anthropologists <laughs> use our podcast, historians use our podcast to piece together life during these unprecedented times. Yeah, a lot of our friends over on Discord. If you're a patron of ours in the Thunder tier and above, you're you part have of access. history. You're a part of history, but a lot of our friends are listening to some of the back catalog of episodes they hadn't listened to yet and being like, wow, this disaster last year was happening. How interesting. Yeah. yeah. We live in a society. So I hope this makes a time capsule somewhere, somewhere in it, some it youth will. fiction. Mm-hmm. I want to say hello, mm-hmm. yes, to that historian, that archaeologist, you know, really piecing the world together and listening to me right now. How are you? I mean, they might not understand what I'm saying. Who knows what language they'll be speaking? And, you know, the language that Malcolm and Asa are speaking right now, though, is about uh, calamity, as you said. They are stocking up the canoe with emergency supplies. He has a toolkit and other odds and ends although no first aid kit because we can't have doctors we can't have first aid we're just not going to be prepared for any health crises listen the nhs is really difficult i hear no shade same okay no shade same uh alice arrives right after he finishes packing up his boat and he just packed it on a whim right this is she's showing up she's ready for her shift nothing weird is happening to her so he waits until Mrs. Polstead leaves so he can talk to Alice all about Mrs. Coulter. He specifically wants to tell her about Bonvie, claiming that Gerard Bonvie is Lyra's dad. And then he remembers, he's like, shit, I can't tell her anything about spying in Oakley Street. He has the conversation with Alice. She asked Dr. Ralph where Lyra was. Did she tell her? Dr. Ralph? No, she never would, he was going to add. She's a spy, but he held back. I'm proud of you, Malcolm. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, he explained that she probably came for the alethiometer. And then he's like, oh, you probably want to know what an alethiometer is. And he gives her an explanation. But in walks his mom in the middle of the explanation. And she listens in and she's like, is this what you get up to when you go to Jericho? And he's like, no, no, this is what Dr. Ralph does in the Bodleian Library. And then he leaves it at that. He's like... 
I shouldn't say anymore. I've said too much. Like Hagrid and Harry Potter. I've said too much. I've said too much. It's interesting that he was assuming that Mrs. Coulter was there for the alethiometer and not for her child, which is, or not for a child, which is the same mistake Lyra makes when she's like, I'm going to go north. I think that my dad wants the alethiometer, not a child sacrifice. Oh, I didn't really think about that reversal. And, hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about that at all. Well, there, we have a. We also have um, another member. Our executive producer of the podcast did not think about that oh as well God. because there's a line of question marks here placed here by Allie, the cat. Yep, Alisan. Yeah, she is. Uh, she was here. She left her mark. I prefer to leave the mark when we're going through our notes. I think it's really important. It, it keeps us raw, authentic. Lots of question marks. <laughs> Allie wants to know too. So does Mrs. Polstead, who asks Alice if she'd be interested in some extra hours. Alice is like, I'll consider it, but I'm kind of tied up with the nuns right now. Once Mrs. Polstead leaves, Alice spills the beans on Sister Katerina. She left the shutter open for Gerard Bonvie. Dun dun dun! Like dun, super dun, dun. crazy stuff happening. You know, these names I was born for because there is a Katerina in Vampire hmm. Diaries. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. Really important character, really, you know, just uh, you'll be beside yourself when you meet her someday if you ever take your time to watch it. Alice and Malcolm's demon speak, both in cat form, which amazes Malcolm. Yeah, I, I think between this and Malcolm being like, oh, I almost spilled the beans on this giant secret about Hannah being a spy, like, the, this mirroring of each other's demons is a good setup for the next few chapters where they start to like trust each other more and get on the same page except for the other part where malcolm withholds some really important information but we'll get there i do think too it's it's intentional he's juxtaposed their demons right of what ben and what asked to settle as they're very opposites and they do very much clash so this does show kind of like an act of faith that they both are in cat form trying to come to the same level. I think that's very yeah. sweet. It shows, especially for Malcolm, he's like, Alice? Like, just Alice? Yeah. Ben tells Asta they should go to the Priory at 8 p.m., but doesn't say why. 8 p.m. is the hour of the compline, and all the sisters will be in their final service of the day, except for Katarina and Fenella. Mm. He gets himself ready at half past seven and puts the silk tarp up on La Belle Sauvage. We have this quote. He remembered what Corvin Texel had said. There were things in the water that had been disturbed, and things in the sky, too. He sheltered his eyes with his hand and peered upwards. Almost at once, a flash of lightning dazzled him, like an inscription on the heavens of his own private aurora. And such a crash of thunder hammered his ears that he felt dizzy and nearly fell, and he clutched the stone parapet in alarm. Asta said, His chariots of wrath that deep thunderclouds form. Malcolm finished the verse, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. So this is from a popular hymn. It is Robert Grant's text, which is a resetting of William Keith's rendering of Psalm 104, which was first published in 1561. O worship the king, all glorious above. There's a lot of interesting ways that this is like put here, like it's broken apart in a couple lines here of how they say it and the the actual rhythm is taken away right that they repeat it in full sentence form instead of kind of lyrical form but there Mm -hmm. is a part of the hymn that i think is most interesting frail children of dust and feeble is frail in you do we trust nor find you to fail 
your mercies how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. This hymnal is paired with many different stories in the Bible and worship, but most prominent that I've seen is paired with Genesis 6-7 to in most of the public congregations. In the day that Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. It goes on with God forming the earth and the water that made the ground. And then God forms man. And God plants the garden in Eden in the east. And there he puts the man who he formed. Out of the ground he made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life, and also in the midst of the garden, in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So, of course, that revolves strongly around the prophecy, right? Like, we know Lyra is Eve as our previous previous readings of the series of the main trilogy has prepared us for. So it's interesting that this verse is so often used when talked about this hymnal and brought into mass. And it's also brought back in Revelation 19, for example. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of many thunder peals huh. crying out. It's often singed along those lines as well. Uh, it's just really interesting that this is the exact verse brought in because it talks of creation but it also talks of destruction and that is exactly what we're about to see as we get to the pharmacy in the next chapter very interesting very interesting yeah it's a perfectly apt line to quote in hand that as you said and pointed out encompasses things and ties it together right with that original trilogy and this one and i mean floods right the flood archetype in general in stories is both that creation and destruction at the same time like the rebirth thing going on but for now, we aren't there yet. We're about to be standing at the bridge. Malcolm feels genuinely scared and hurries into the walls of the Priory, where the final song is being sung by the nuns. <sighs> feels kind of dark in retrospect, because like they keep saying it's the final service, the final service. Their yeah. final service of the night, their final song of the night. The nuns' final song. I didn't, you know, like... They die. Yeah, piece that together till I, like, uh reading that again just now and i think i was like oh my god it hit me in that moment and then my face just like it's real dark frowned and i was like oh no i'm yeah i didn't really think about it till now but i'm like oh that's intentional and it's dark because it's the last time that they sing to their god and hold their faith and keep their faith together so uh kind of depressing but we we keep on because it's gonna get worse Malcolm taps on the windows with a stone and Alice comes out. She pops her head out and tells him, head to the potting sheds, the one at the left-hand end. You'll see it. There's a light on. I can't go with you. I'm looking after Lyra. He's like, well, where's Sister Katerina? And she shakes her head. Ben tells Asta they have to be incredibly quiet. They look for the shed with the light as directed. He was used to the sheds because he used to help Sister Martha and all of them were unlocked. Asta turns into an owl to help them see and sneak about the big sheds, with the water beginning to pound harder on the thin roof, threatening to give way any moment. That's not the only thing that's pounding at this moment. Ah! (laughs) Asta became a moth, and as she settled near another crack in the wall, Malcolm felt a shock as she saw something. He leaned closer and peered through the crack to see Gerard Bonneville, 
and sister Katerina in a clumsy embrace. She was leaning back against a pile of empty sacks. Her bare legs gleamed in the candlelight. The hyena was licking her pug demon, who was on his back, squirming with pleasure. Oh, they're doing it. Oh, God, Lord. This is a... Look, we're a sex-positive podcast, obviously. I would never shame Sister Katerina for getting it on. No. Like, girl, if it's safe, if it's consensual. That's the thing, is this doesn't feel fully consensual as we get to the end of it, as we'll get into in a second, or out of. Uh, But this is interesting, right? Because this is, like, Malcolm's first experience of understanding what sex is, as we're about to learn. So, like, his first understanding of sex is tainted by watching a nun. And as we know, like, Mary Malone quit being a nun because she couldn't have passion in her life, right? Not just, like, love passion, but just having passion for anything. And now we have Sister Katerina, a nun, seduced by this evil bad guy who's trying to sell your baby crush to the government. Uh, With all these weird circumstances cropping up, I don't know, this could mess a kid up. This is some some dark shit. I mean... You know, it's not like he climbed into a window, saw two twins having sex, and and then was shoved out of it, you know? Shoved out of the window. Malcolm's really quite lucky here, in many ways. But I will say that that struck me, you know? That that really struck me, the, the, the imagery of the hyena sensually licking the pug and the pug squirming. I think about that, um... It's, it's a lot kind of a about. bit like the Asriel Coulter scene, right? The, uh, but less the, sexy. The monkey swooning. Yeah, but less sexy. Like, there's not. That was sexy. I don't know, kind I of don't romantic. know why. Yeah, I don't know why the leopard and the golden monkey feel sexier. The, the well, also, it's because fuck. we see the golden monkey so ferocious throughout the series and so aggressive and crazy, fucking neurotic. And we see, like, Stelmaria stay elegant and composed, right? And you get to this moment and just the language yeah. is so romantic and the monkey it swooned is. into the leopard and uh, they, they like, you know, for a moment it was almost everything, you know, uh, not to George R. R. Martin it, but Asha Greyjoy <laughs> has the moment where she's like, her cunt became the world. And I think he meant something like this, you know, emotionally. <laughs> I think this is what George meant, this kind of This is what he was going for. Yeah. This exact feeling, you know, like uh, th- that swooning is so important to me. I don't know why it is, but that's like yeah. what I what I think of it. I just think of them swooning into each other and how like they could never be. And it's one of those, you know, it's like this yeah. ferocious fire burning of like Coulter and Asriel doomed lovers, which we learn they are doomed lovers. They you know, are. They are at the end. They're star-crossed, but they literally pull the stars I mean, together and get their shit together for one moment. They do get to be together forever if you think about it. But yeah, um... Absolutely. And I think you're right. It's the language, right? Like the idea and the imagery of spooning is very different from the concept of squirming. And like the sound of squirming is just different. And I, you were talking about Katerina versus Mary, right? And that's sex positive. There is, we don't know what Katerina's background is. We don't know that she came to the Priory and chose to become a nun. Mm-hmm. Or was she forced to become one, right? Was was right. Did, was she coerced into becoming one? And Gerard Bonneville like offers her the things that she wanted and, and that might have been taken from her. It's Maybe. what we call a power imbalance, I would say. I mean, a lot he's of- exploiting. <laughs> he is exploiting her perfectly. Yeah. For the connection to the Priory. That is literally something he's doing. That is why he has, he says struck up a relationship with her. If you go back to Alice. 
He was trying to get in with Alice and trying to exploit that, you know, she wants to feel wanted as a person, yeah. right? Like she wants to have value and like he thought he could use that weakness and he thought he could prey on her and instead he's preying on Katarina and that's what that squirming is to me. You know, like think of like a, a snake eating like a fucking bird or like a frog. Think of a snake eating a frog. There's a good one. Like, yeah, it's circle of life and all. And it's the food chain, but, like, that's what this feels like. Like, that frog is just squirming, trying to get away before it's consumed. Yeah, watching snakes eat thing is, things is really interesting. It's incredible. It is. It, it's it incredible. really is. It's also kind of silly when they walk around with that giant bulge. Um, that's what I look like after, like, Thanksgiving dinner. Right? <laughs> you know? uh, or now. Um, <laughs> now? Did you eat a lot? Anyways, um... You get a whole frog. Oh. Asta and Malcolm, though, they immediately understand that Katarina, what are you doing? <laughs> Underst- like that. <laughs> understand that Katarina, who's supposed to be watching Lyra, was seduced by Bonneville, who wants to kidnap Lyra. They talk about telling Sister Benedicta, but Malcolm's like, well, what, what proof do we have? We have none. I have no cell phone and asked implies well like this is how you make babies and malcolm's like oh that's true and they're like but this isn't really practical proof and they're like discussing why he's doing this again because i guess they don't have paternity tests but also that's a long fucking time that is a long time to wait for your proof like yeah it doesn't make sense and he doesn't know that either it's at least a month you know, at the earliest, if 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 Katarina realizes, like, oh my gosh, I missed my period. I love that Malcolm's a, like, I the, don't know like, how long it takes side. to bake one. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, that could take 80 months, Asta. Okay. It really could, but. <sighs> I love that, like, they're watching it and Asta's like, you understand what you saw, right? And, and Malcolm's like, hand on dick. I've never been more prepared for this moment. <laughs> no! Oh no! It's uh, true! Every Asta's little like, kid's like sex. Yeah, that's why Asta's an owl, so she can see better. Uh, why do you think? Wait, I know that you said that Asta was an owl, but we don't know what type. Would you say it was a horned owl? Oh no, we gotta ask, we gotta ask Cassidy more about this. What is the yeah. sex? What is the most? What is the thirstiest owl? So, Sister Katarina gets to come in this story. It's a happy ending here for her, at least. And it's actually a happy ending for Bonvi, from what we hear. Uh, and this line is actually really beautiful. It's interesting. Malcolm is a deep kid. Later, uh, we're going to talk about Dr. Ralph saying that Malcolm is kind of a romantic. And I'm like, damn, Malcolm, like. You're out here writing art. For those of you who have watched Modern Family, young Malcolm is like Manny, for sure. He thought of her cry flying through the night sky and making the moon turn her face away, making the owls tremble in their flight. I was trying to remember like where this reminded me of, and then I realized it was just reminding me of Asriel showing Lyra to the moon, and I'm like, I don't like this connection. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like that either. Not why you put it like that. Sorry. I was- at first, I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, it sounds like Katarina had a good time. I know that this is, like, everything here is very negative, what's happening between her and Bonneville, but I'm like, damn, you know, her cry flying through the night sky, mm, you know? It's kind of witchy. There's that. You know, I'm just like, it sounds like, I don't know, she had a good time, that her pug did, and 
it all obviously goes to shit in a second. There's also, you know, when you are talking about Asriel, and it comes up a couple of times later on that, you know, Malcolm's like, oh, yeah, I could tell that Asriel loved Lyra, right? It, it feels like the text making up for the ambiguity in his dark materials, trying to be like, yes, Asriel did love his daughter. Hmm. But um, not to tie it to the scene, but you did it first, not me. Well, the man and his hyena come next. And Malcolm and Asta worry about Lyra's safety, ready to at least tell the sisters so they can punish Katarina and keep Lyra safe. Yeah. I will say something that's interesting that goes on with this scene and, and that carries throughout this chapter, though, is it does some interesting stuff with uh, the onomatopoeia setting up the sound of the hyena that you keep seeing that, ha! I, I actually should have probably looked up how hyenas sound prior to this episode, but it recurs uh, over this chapter and the next one, and then it ends up becoming this like horror movie sort of device or horror story um, device. They actually, this was I want to say it was actually as early as the Quorum chapter, but it, it it's like the creepiest part of the book. Like <laughs> before this episode, you and I were kind of talking off the record that Gerard Bonvi isn't the greatest villain. Like I mean, he's fine. He's a villain. He works for this. And let me tell you, when we get to him soon calling on the water and his voice echoing across the water, I mean, when I read this book, I was on a train to and from Eliana's house uh, back in the day when we were allowed to take trains places. And I guess you still can, but you know what I mean. That's not encouraged. So I was reading this book on the way to and from Eliana's house and I had earbuds in and I had like kind of atmospheric music in, water music basically while I was reading this because I just wanted to think of like the river while I was reading it. And I'm reading and I'm reading and you get to the ha echoing on the water and like, oh, it's so creepy. And it, it, it is a really good device for Gerard Bonvie's villain. It is a really good device in my opinion. Yeah. I've now looked up some hyena sounds. There, There's a range of them. Cackle. Uh, it's like a cackle, right? Almost. It, it kind of. Some of it is kind of like a giggle, and some of it is almost like a weird moaning wheeze, like, <gasps> and some of it is like, a, <laughs> and very unnerving. So I can see how it works, as you were saying, in the context <sighs> of Bon V, and, and really playing him up as this like almost like, I want to say Joker-like figure in mm -hmm. some ways. Yeah, you don't know what the guy's going to do. No one knows his story completely yeah. as we're about to get into. Like, he's a wild card. Wild card. Wild cards. Oh, my God. Yeah. And to be frank, like, I just, like, I know how sound just echoes so loudly on the water. And I could see where while you're hiding. I mean, even in the next chapter in the pharmacy, they're hiding. And they're just like, yeah. or either in the boat. They're not even in the pharmacy yet yeah. in the pharmacy. And they're just like, oh, fuck, this guy's going to find us. This guy's going to find us. And he is terrifying. It's a good build up for that. But I don't think he's mm -hmm. a great villain. He's no he, Metatron. He's a good monster, not a good villain. Yes. Like, like, yes. like it, uh, the monster in a horror movie chasing you or something. And that's very much, I think, how he's set up throughout. Yeah, throughout this book. Like, like, uh, yeah, this chasing figure. But. Yeah. Ha! Well. I'm working whoa. on it. <sighs> Suddenly, a large crack of thunder shoots, the sky erupts, water pours down heavier. Where Mal and Asta stand, it gets deeper and deeper, and Sister Katerina begins to plea with Gerard in the background, saying, I must go, and promising him something. Malcolm and Asta immediately hear that on the water and realize, oh shit, Lyra's unsafe, and they run, ignoring the shout that happens behind them, the hyena and man's crazed laughter 
trying to get themselves to the Priory, but realizing the gatehouse light is gone. Wait, because the gatehouse is gone. Because the river broke. Because rubble's everywhere and suddenly waves are surging over them from the bank. The flood has begun in full earnest. Katarina's wailing in terror somewhere behind them and they struggle to the kitchen door yelling for Alice. Yeah. Everything really happens very, very fast in this moment. It's so sudden. It's like it's out of nowhere. But maybe this is what floods are like. I mean, it it, broke. Yeah. it, It all turns in a moment. As you said, yeah, the dam broke and... I mean, they find Alice dazed under a pile of plaster and beams from the ceiling, and Lyra's crib is floating. The acid darts down to help Pan, and Malcolm grabs Lyra. And we're going to see this probably throughout the rest of this book. But of course, there's obviously all these different, like, savior slash hero sorts of imagery and symbols that are always heaped on Lyra, starting in his dark materials even now, right? She's Eve. But in this moment, with the little crib floating, she's very much like Moses. She's going to be a lot like Moses going down this river again in the rest of this book. That's really a good one. She leads all the dead people, right? And you were talking about Genesis. That's another Mm -hmm. Genesis story, right? The the Children of Dust is, the Garden of Eden is, the Flood Mm -hmm. is a Genesis story. So is Moses. And yeah, again, Lyra leads everyone out from the land of the dead. That's their great pilgrimage I do have an idea who Malcolm could be closely related to later, too, as we'll get to, so... Moses? Mm, Maybe others, maybe others. Malcolm can't see any of the other sisters, right? He's looking. Alice is trying to get herself upright when Bone V suddenly bursts in, and he's clutching Lyra tight while Alice is hitting Bone V with a chair from behind, world star, and Bone V (laughs) falls forward... Blood streams from him. He slips in the water. He's trying to get Lyra. Malcolm's like, I wonder if everyone's crumbled or floating around or even alive. And for a moment, he wonders if he and Bone V are the only things living in the Priory. But then he remembers Alice is there. This is me staring into the camera. He stumbles along to get to her and they link hands. They get themselves out with Lyra and they get themselves to the bridge through all the streaming water. It shakes beneath their feet as they go over the bridge Fast as they can, they make their way to the trout, and the terrace is overrun with water. Of course, the resounding creepy. Eliana, you want to do the honors? <laughs> I, I don't think I remember even how it goes again. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. Okay. Ha ha ha! There you go. Well, that is happening behind them, and Bone V is following them, so that's creepy. They try the door, it's locked. Bone V gains on them. Alice throws a rock from the parapet down. They work their way to the front door, which is also locked because Malcolm is supposed to be asleep in his bed upstairs. He yells for his parents, but it's lost in the water surrounding them, and they check the back door as well, hammering on it for a while, but it's locked. No one hears them. Yeah, I. it's sad. It is sad in that brief moment and, and very anxiety-inducing. I am glad that his parents locked the door, though. Yeah, because there's a killer out general. there. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, yeah, that's true, that too. <laughs> There's a murderer on the list. I know we were just talking about him. But like, oh my god. Uh, they dash to the storeroom where Malcolm kept La Belle Sauvage, passing a drowned peacock. I forgot about the peacocks. Holy shit. Yeah, they're uh, dead. So. <laughs> that's right. They're just random peacocks. And now they're dead. They are. 
Malcolm directs Alice and Lyra to sit still on the Belle Sauvage, and then he preps for takeoff, pulling up the canopy and feeling the boat stir at her mooring rope. He cuts the knot, and off they go. They could only go one way. La Belle Sauvage sped like a dart over the mad river down toward Port Meadow, toward the wild waste of water that was sweeping through Oxford towards whatever lay beyond. And that brings us to part two of La Belle Sauvage. Yes, there's a wonderful illustration, and I want to take a moment to appreciate that. And the moment's done. Chapter (laughs) 16. (laughs) It's a good illustration, and I wanted to give it five seconds of silence. (laughs) Chapter 16. The Pharmacy. For a little bit, Malcolm felt like this was a mistake, but what else was he supposed to do? Alice could have died, and Lyra too, let alone Bon V taking her and hurting her. There's minimal visibility when they have the canopy up on the boat. He has no clue when houses, bridges, or trees could crop up, and that's not the only problem. He kind of has to check on the paddle in the front every once in a while, meaning he has to keep the front uncovered, meaning water is filling the boat. They plan to find somewhere to tie off and bail out the water, and Asta takes watch, peering out, warning them about trees. One comes up pretty quickly, and Malcolm saves it just in time, but his face takes a majority of the hit. I'm gonna be real with you, this has happened to me just walking. I'm not even, like, in a boat or anything like Malcolm, and it's hard. I can't imagine how much harder it is in a boat. Hmm. Malcolm pushes against the current with all his might and finds a sturdy branch to tie off on while Alice begins to scoop water out with the canvas bucket. You know, Alice is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in all of this. I'm going to throw that out there. Yes, correct. He pulls the tarp out to keep them dry as they work, joining Alice with the water. He empties his boots out finally and then advises Alice about the biscuits in the emergency kit below her seat, which they munch on. And I have recently learned about biscuit tins. Like, of course, yes, we have our cookies packaged, you know, in certain ways. I think I tend to buy cookies in, what, plastic packages here? But apparently what I've learned is that in the UK, they sometimes come in nice tins and there is a fancy, I forgot which brand, a fancy brand that has a, it's really cute, biscuit tin purse is mm. what it's called, but it's like, I don't know, a bazillion pounds. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And it's really cute. It's like this cute cylindrical um, bag with this sort of like uh, rods on it. My, my colleague sent it to me and yeah, so... I just wanted to talk about biscuit tins. They are really popular at Christmas time here in the US, oh, okay. I would say. Yep, I I that was that's kind of what you know how we have the popcorn too? Yeah. Uh, you bought me really good popcorn that one time, I by did. the way, for Christmas. Allegedly. That was amazing. It was like dark chocolate and salt and it was so good. Anyways, caramel. But so I digress. It's popular at Christmas time. We have really pretty tins that have Christmas or floral prints on them that have biscuits in them. Um, yeah. generally of different varieties, some with jam, etc. I've uh, had jelly. I've had like cookies come in tins, but they're like squatter. They're like more flatter cylinders as opposed to this mm-hmm. one, which was like a tall, taller like cylinder. Skinnier. And then, yeah. More uh cylindrical. Tall more tall. Tall, yeah. Tall mm-hmm. I mean they're both cylinders. But the other one was more disc like and yeah, mm-hmm. and they Yeah, I've had them in those I think too, but not as often. They don't make they them as those... big here. Yeah. Anyway, 
That's that was my insight into. Well, they are great to put sewing supplies in and other supplies and first aid kits. Regardless of shape, Malcolm, get with it. (laughs) As they munch on these biscuits, suddenly Malcolm sees something white sticking out. The aura has returned to his eye at the worst time possible, and he tries to keep very still as it washes over him. He sat there in the wet discomfort and tried to feel calm. He did feel something, the kind of thing Asta had described on that evening when it came on them during his geography homework. A sort of peaceful, disembodied floating in a space that was immense or even infinite in all directions. The spangled ring grew larger, just like before, and as before, he was helpless and paralyzed while it came closer and closer and expanded to fill the entire circumference of his vision. But he was never frightened. It wasn't alarming. In a way, it was even comforting, that calm, oceanic drifting. It was his aurora. It was telling him that he was still part of the great order of things and that that could never change. This is track full of themes and concepts that are really common in meditation. It interests me that it's described so similarly, right? Like peaceful, disembodied floating, infinite space, calming, oceanic drifting. Uh, Meditation is similar to the state of what you need to have to read the alethiometer. So from what we know, or gain consciousness or let consciousness flock to you, right? We see it with Mary in the cave. Especially that line, it was telling him he was still part of the great order of things and that could never change. I really think that his aurora that comes out of him, I think that's going to come into play in the future. Yes, it definitely, it definitely does sound like that same sort of state. Yeah. Malcolm just lets it run its course, as everyone does, and and exhausted, still sees something white in the boat. Turns out it's a business card, which he puts in his pocket. I love this because it was a fake out, right? Like he saw something white and then it was his roarer. And then he sees something white again afterwards, still there. uh, And it's the business card. I'm surprised it's not soaked through. I know, right? Since the boat was... Must be great cardstock. Girl, he went to Vista Print. You know Asriel. (laughs) I love reading these a few chapters at a time because you can catch kind of the overarching themes uh, the next three chapters, all, like these three chapters, all explain each other, right? We get to uh, to go see Oakley Street's reaction and learn some of the stuff we knew, some we didn't. But here, you get to watch this piece of paper move through three chapters, right? It starts here. He's got the white card. He watches it travel to the end of the next chapter, and it comes into fruition in the plot with Oakley Street. It's kind of the moving piece for us to follow and keeps us intrigued. And I think. We talk a lot about differences in the main authors we're analyzing right now, George R. R. Martin and Philip Pullman. And George is more of a gardener, right? Like he grows things and sometimes they just blossom and they're pretty to look at, but sometimes he pulls off some crazy stuff with them. Pullman's very uh-huh. precise and clean with his work. He feels very purposeful. He has very clean lines and he does know what he wants for the most part. So knowing that he has this one piece of small cardstock that's cut, trimmed on the boat and it's going to take us to Asriel's, well, not to Asriel's, but it will take us somewhere eventually. Yes, it will. And, he, and he, of course, as you said, he's planned that out before, right? With the giving of the card in the first place. Because he's like, how do I get Malcolm there? How do we string that line? Follow the card and see where it goes. <sighs> that was that was pretty risky. Not really. I mean, the, the flood's way riskier. Anyway, <laughs> Malcolm comes back fully, too. He realizes something that Alice had realized much earlier... Because of course she did. Lyra needs changing. 
They plan the what now, which they decide they gotta wait until morning so they can get hot water to wash Lyra with, and they take shifts to make sure that they stay afloat in case the water goes down. They also try to avoid Bonneville. Mal takes the first shift as Alice and Lyra curl up in a blanket, and he switches off their torch, aka flashlight. He realizes that everything kind of sucks. This canoe is too small to sleep in, let alone for three people, and his face is all scratched up and he's cold. But Alice hasn't even complained once, and he was impressed and vowed that he also would not complain, and I love how just like a lot more of Alice's strength and resolve and her her dependability comes through in this chapters. Yeah, there's a lot of expansion on her characterization, which is great compared to kind of just the sullen girl with the awkward skinny knees that's mean. You know, like she was just like the mean girl before. Now she's like, I'm mean because my life sucks. And here I am and my life sucks again. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely where she's at. And she is right. After a bit, the girls doze off. Malcolm and Asta whisper to each other about where they are. It seems to be Port Meadow, but the river's kind of everywhere now, not just one place. Asta asks, do you think we'll get swept away? But Malcolm doesn't think so. They'll find their way back. She asks, what if it never stops? But Malcolm says the Egyptian man didn't say it would go on forever, and every flood stops eventually. Finally, she asks, what's on the card you picked up? And he tells her, Lord Asriel, October House, Chelsea, London. On the back were written the words, with many thanks, if you need my help at any time, be sure to ask, Asriel. So I did a little internet digging, you know, I was just hanging out, doing my research, finding out new stuff. I like to learn stuff. And Chelsea has some pretty high property prices, okay? Like, very expensive to live there. And this was super big in the 70s, especially. Uh, They actually resulted in the coining of the term Sloan Ranger, which was usually... Hmm. Usually, uh, at first, was female, right? Like, it was mostly in reference to women when it was first induced. It meant a stereotypical upper-middle or upper-class person who embodies a particular upbringing and outlook. Uniform, effortless, and unambitious, although sophisticated. So it was usually in reference to people like, oh, Diana, Princess of Wales, but then it began to include men. A male Sloan has also been called a Ra, or a Hooray Henry. In France, they call it a BCBG, Bon Chic, Bon Genre. What? That's a, what that's from? Yes, that is exactly what it means. I'm it's a dumbass. It. But our analog is like preppy subculture. So it's like the preps it's and the jocks. Different. You know, like Abercrombie and Hollister in the aughts. No, I'm just kidding. Kind of. Not really. It's pretty much that. The kids from like the fancy neighborhood that had a finished beautiful basement and an upstairs and a huge downs. Anyways. So Chelsea had this reputation also as London's Bohemian Quarter, the haunt of artists, radicals, painters, poets. It doesn't really survive now. The squares off Kings Road are home to others, investment bankers, film stars. But the Arts Club continues, and the College of Art and Design moved from Manresa Road to Pimlico in 2005. Very dramatic. But it's very funny to think about, and... Today's average price in pounds is like 1.5 million and the low is 125,000 and the high is 7.5 million pounds. Like that's that's some ducats. That's some money to put out to live yeah. in Chelsea. So to put that all to Asriel, like I want to know so much more about this Chelsea home now. He's like a preppy 
well-raised. Well, we, and we know he was well-raised into aristocracy, right? Like he was a mm-hmm. sitting member of the British Parliament at some point in his history, in adulthood. And he was super well-respected before he, you know, did the whole wedlock thing with Coulter. And he he's straight up a Sloan Ranger, dude. He's a Hooray Henry, a, a Ra. That's him. The area he lives, the fact that Alice and Malcolm are kind of like going to this promised land of rich people to get Lyra to safety. Interesting stuff going on. It, it honestly does make me put Malcolm in kind of the Caleb role, uh, son of Jeffune, who... I don't know, kind of. In some ways, he was like, Malcolm's a child spy trying to get Lyra to a promised land, and Caleb was kind of the opposite. He was a child spy trying to get into a promised land to put more on it and take it, you know, for people. Mm. But in Hebrew, Caleb's name translates to faithful, zealous, ruthless, bold, and brave, and sometimes is symbolized with a dog. Obviously, Mm. Asta's not really a dog, but the idea of Malcolm being Lyra's servant for life comes to mind here and dog demons. And uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting analog that he specifically was sent to spy on the promised land. That is interesting. And yeah, he he was doing that a lot as a child and they're trying to, those people have ideas. And I think that is interesting what you're saying about where Asriel lives and that it's in Chelsea. Like, we're less familiar, I think, with some of the cultural signifiers, right? That mm-hmm. that Pullman might be referencing here because we are we grow up in a set of different cultural signifiers. Yanks, right? yes, yanks. <laughs> um, spelling words without the letter U, uh, golden compass. Th- those those things. These are the uh, offenses we have for you. Indeed, and our accents. Um, <laughs> Many many things about us are. I just want to get it all on the table now. You know, absolutely. Of how bad we are. Absolutely, and but I think what you're saying, like this research, it's great context on Azrael. You were saying it had a reputation as Bohemian Quarter, and I wonder if that's like the period that Pullman is referencing here to an extent, because we know that Azrael, probably very recent to all of this, right? Because Lyra is a baby, has been stripped yeah. of all of his wealth. And everything, so for him to be in the Chelsea area uh, might be speaking to that fall in class. But at the same time, as you said, right, he he is a mix of both. Well, and it's not even that, like, Chelsea is so expensive that... Now. No, it was, like, becoming, like, this is, like, the 70s. It was, like, high class. Like, Princess Diana came from here. So, like, he obviously had money because he was in the government as an adult. He had connections. And he obviously is some fucking like play. He's like fucking Tony Stark, Playboy millionaire. Yeah. Um. No. Yeah. Opposite. He. Uh. He's obviously still got like when before court happened, they talked about how he had multiple estates and that he had hidden Lyra and Ma Costa at one of the estates. Like he has several houses, and one of them is in Chelsea. Asriel was well off, and yeah, they say they took all his wealth, but what does that mean? Yeah. He probably sold all his assets and went traveling. You know, like, obviously he went traveling, so he probably just got rid of what he could and made the money he could and went, bye. Yeah, but, I mean, obviously, as you said, he's well-connected enough, and people still clearly respect him, as we see from the way a couple of other higher-up people speak of him in this chapter, in the next chapter or so, so. Yeah. Things weren't all completely terrible for him. Well... 
Malcolm gets that brilliant idea, though. He's like, wait, but maybe Asriel, who, as you pointed out, still has resources and helped me get a better boat. It's like he knew that there was going to be a flood. And I'm like, interesting, interesting, uh, as you've pointed out in previous chapters, Chloe. It's all it's all interesting who, that Asriel, right, who hangs out with Egyptian people and has spent quite a bit of time with them and is esteemed by them and had Egyptian person help him fix up this boat. Interesting that he might be like, ugh, providing things that could be useful in the flood. At least he wasn't a closed-minded asshole about it. That's true. Even though he's the one that's going to end up causing more floods. Anyways. Whoa. <sighs> well, well Ma- Malcolm and Asta both agree. If this is the plan, if we're going to get Lyra to Asriel, we can't tell Alice. Malcolm sits watch, but he starts to drift off, slipping and falling over sideways and waking. He chastises Asta. He's like, why didn't you wake me up? But Alice wakes up in lieu of this and is like, we need dry blankets and pillows. And he's like, well, I'm going to paddle us home tomorrow after we get supplies for Lyra. She doubts they're going to be able to paddle against the current because she's not stupid. And he resigns. and He's like, you're right. We're just going to have to stay tied off and go into Port Meadow tomorrow. It's right below us. Alice says his parents will worry. And he's like, what about your parents? She tells him, I don't have a dad, just a mom and sisters. They all live in Wolvercote. Malcolm never knew. She says her mom will think that she drowned, and he realizes the nuns will think she and Lyra drowned too. You know, if any survived. After a minute of her and Ben whispering to one another, Alice asks Malcolm if he went to the potting shed and if she saw them. He's like, well, I couldn't really see, but I definitely knew it was Katerina and Gerard. And then... As Alice does, she calls him a bastard and says that she had wanted to kill him when she had hit him. And Malcolm's like, I don't get it. And she's like, he was nice to me and that's why. And she's like, you you wouldn't get it. That's interesting. It reminds me of the witch with Will. You wouldn't understand why I killed your dad. Yeah, that is kind of like that. I do get it. I get it more why Alice would do that. Yeah, no, agreed. Towards a fucking creep, and like, I understand her wanting to hurt him, and and kill him for mm-hmm. trying to take advantage of her. Right? She she's a vulnerable girl, and she has to deal with that already from like her clientele. So, yeah, as we saw, Alice asks Malcolm, "So, is Azrael really Lyra's dad?" And he reminds her that you know I actually met Lord Azrael. And I saw that Azrael held her and whispered to her in the moonlight when Azrael saw Lyra. And he's like, it looked as if he loved her very much. Mm-hmm. After some silence beneath the rain, Allison asks, what are we going to do with Lyra if we can't get back? And Malcolm, you know, just looks around. No, he doesn't look around shiftily. But inside, he's definitely looking around shiftily. And he's like, we could try taking her to Jordan and claim Scholastic Sanctuary. And he's like, we'll probably need to know a Latin phrase, but, you know, I don't (laughs) know it. And Alice is like, how the fuck is a college going to take care of Lyra? It's full of old men. He's like, I guess we're going to have to pay someone to do it, or Azrael's just going to have to send money for her. Yeah, the, the distrust of men. For Alice, I didn't really have it click till now, but poor Alice. Yeah, I mean, poor Alice. A lot of all she's known, right? She's yeah. at a very early. I mean, we all kind of learned it at an early age. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, seeing it here and just seeing, you know, how 
Gerard was able to exploit her. And then, of course, that she really hated him. And then she's like, do you really think Lyra and Asriel, like, they're related? And Malcolm tells her about Asriel holding Lyra and loving her. And she just is thinking about it. About her dad. And I'm just like, wow, that sucks. So, life sucks for Alice right now. It's the Alice Parslow Club. Thanks for coming. <sighs> Alice asks where the college is, and he says it's on Turl Street in the middle of town. And then she asks, how do you know about Sanctuary? He explains Dr. Ralph told him, and how Dr. Ralph left her book at the Trout. Again, taking care not to say anything about the spying. Congratulations, Malcolm. You're doing great, Malcolm. He tells her Hannah lives in Jericho, and her downstairs is probably full of water. He hopes that she moved the books. I bet she did. Probably. He's so annoying, he wouldn't leave it alone. I mean, if I were if I were Dr. Ralph and someone warned me about that, I would have done it. Yeah, same. I mean, books are important. He drifts off, thinking that the water might be still in the morning, and they might be able to find their way easily to Jordan after taking care of Lyra. And she would have something clean to drink, because the water they floated on would be full of stirred-up dirt and dead animals. The ghosts of all the animals would be crying under the water. He could hear them now. Ha! 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 <laughs> I don't there's, there's, they have a range of noises that they make. I, I went through that video a little more. <laughs> oh, no. Alice kicks Malcolm back awake to the sound of Bonneville's maniacal laughter. They wait for him to pass. It seems he's just rowing around in the dark, <laughs> looking for them. Like you do. <laughs> like any normal adult does. He would have been going downstream and faster than them, so Malcolm just nibbles at the biscuit. Alice offers him, and they just drift off for a few hours of rest. And I don't know, this kind of reminds me a little bit of the, the mint cookie things that Will and the angels have. Yeah, especially because it's funny, you know, Pullman just put out an interview today talking about Lord of the Rings, huh. and both of us, huh. I know, we aren't huge, huge fans of the book series, not in a negative way, just... I could be. Yeah, I'm open to it. Haven't done it yet. Well, Pullman had a couple criticisms, right? Like, they asked, mm. if Tolkien was alive today, what would you say to him? And he's like, why did you not let your girls do anything? Like, at all? <laughs> uh, which is a good question, but... It uh, it, it, it kind of makes me think of, it's kind of Tolkien. Oh, there's a lot of Tolkien-esque in this, right? Like, later we're going to get the fairy, for example. But something about this disaster with it feels about right. Hmm. I mean, I the, don't... The know. elven bread. There's, like, the elven bread that they oh, eat. Yes, I don't it's remember. Like, um, basically, it's very fulfilling. It's like, you're not supposed to have too much huh. of it. It's like a blessed, special elven magical bread. And naturally, like, everybody eats it. And it's like, oh, sorry, we were supposed to make that last lol. Uh, but it's supposed to be, like, magical and super filling. That's hmm. what it makes me think of is, like, also it's like hearth, you know, it's your sharing. Mm, yeah. Uh, it's a commonwealth between people to share food a when commonwealth. you're hungry. Mm-hmm. 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 Until then, Malcolm just awakens to the cold. But the boat, alas, is still on level water. The rain had stopped, though, for the most part, so he pulls back the tarp to check out the view, and there's nothing but water as far as the eye can see. Fast-moving water. 
Their luck came from being tied to the gaggle of trees, and he's pretty worried about his little canoe facing these roaming waters. He measures that Oxford is a ways away and peels the tarp back a bit, getting ready to take off. Alice awakens, but Lyra stays asleep. Alice looks out and thinks the conditions are just too awful for them to paddle across. But Lyra is cold and smells bad, so they need to leave. And once more, Malcolm wishes that he had made a slipped reef knot, but he pulls the knot all the same, because alas, he should have practiced his knots more, apparently. Ugh. Well, ready or not. Ha! Ah! Ah! Sorry. Amazing! <laughs> Malcolm making the slipped reef knot. Uh, sometimes that knot is referred to as a Hercules knot. I thought that was great with his heroic role going on. But also, that knot is sometimes referred to as a marriage knot, which is kind of funny because later Hannah says he's a romantic, so that's something. Or a surgical knot. It's used in Greece medically, uh, and a varied version is nowadays used as well, but definitely in ancient Greece it was used. And there's even ancient Greek jewelry that you can find that has certain reef knots on it in the exact shape through the metal jewelry, so it was like a popular thing then. So that's really interesting that he's kind of going for a a hero's... Uh, a hero that actually has to deal with water often, now that I think about it. You that's know, true. Like and some other critters had, out there. He had many trials, like 12 of them or something. Zero to hero! Zero to Major. hero! Well, Malcolm's trying to go the distance, but immediately regrets oh. not fully pulling the tarp back, because he cannot see ahead. He cannot see the distance. Alice bickers with him over it, but they go all the same, and Mal's beginning to paddle. He concentrates on staying steady and avoiding the underwater snags, peering at the Oxford buildings far, far in the distance. (laughs) The water is moving them toward the city, but with interruptions, obstacles, and turbulence, and Malcolm does what he can to keep them upright. As they begin to get into the mainstream of water, though, they see others suffering with the flood. Some are in boats, some floating or keeping their heads above, and some clinging to trees. Malcolm can barely keep them from capsizing, let alone steer them to Turtle Street, so it's all he can do to try to steer them to a pharmacy. Alice holds on to the pharmacy sign bracket, then Malcolm ties them off. He has Alice shield Lyra so that he can break the window into the pharmacy for them. He's about to climb in, and then Alice reminds him, you should just break the rest of the glass so you don't, like, you know, cut yourself up entirely and die. You know, she's really smart. I probably would have jumped through and slashed myself up. And I have done that with glass before. I have six. Oh, I interesting. Had, yeah, my leg, I have this scar that's almost in the shape of a smiley face. It's crazy. It huh. was 16 stitches at the time, though. Uh, I walked into an empty two by three foot glass aquarium and the glass went oh. into my leg. It was like in the way and I didn't know it was there. The apartment I was at was dark and it shattered into my leg. Blood everywhere. And that's all I could think. Like. I've all that everywhere. I'm like, Malcolm does not need more scratches. The branch was bad enough. Mm-mm. The Eliana walking branch was bad enough. Yep. I uh, am someone who walks into branches, but I, I do think I would have considered the glass. Okay. I would have been well, like, I don't know about that. Listen, no one likes a bragger, okay? <laughs> it does kind of make me, you know, Alice noting that maybe she's just astute, but also I'm like, has she done this before? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. She's- She's got a few years on our friend Malcolm. She does, and she's like at that age, right? Where maybe you do some rebellious shit. Sort of hard. Allegedly. Alice hands Lyra down to Malcolm through the window and climbs down herself, beginning to direct what to get Lyra. Malcolm's like, we'll clean you up soon, Lyra. And Alice is like, so funny. The we part that you just said, <laughs> that you said we were going to do it. 
They get biscuits, juice, warm water, nappies. They use the fireplace to boil water that streams from the faucet. Asta asks, what if the shopkeeper comes? And they're like, he can't be mad. We're helping a baby. Asta and Malcolm argue and whisper about whether or not to tell Alice about their plan. And Malcolm's like, I don't want to. She won't agree with it. And she'll want to take Lyra back. They get the water boiling so they can get ready to feed Lyra. And Malcolm goes to find a pencil to leave a note for the shopkeep. Malcolm pulls dead of the trout in at Godstow will pay for my damage and what we have taken. Big Will vibes. Yeah, there's will a lot of Will vibes. Say. There's yeah. a lot of Will going on in this chapter. Absolutely. From and, both and these characters. three. Yeah. yeah. Well, they'd only been there for half an hour and both wished that they could stay longer, but they knew that Gerard might be looking for them and he may not know the boat in the daylight, but they weren't about to... You know, fuck around and find out. Alice orders Malcolm to sit still this time, dabbing at his wounds with hot water as well. She dabs antiseptic on and considers band-aids, which she says no to, interestingly. And then she settles in to feed Lyra. Malcolm passes her to Alice, thinking of what his mother might say about Lyra. Which is that she's (laughs) full of beans. (laughs) She is full of beans! Oh, it's so cute. Oh, I'm going to say it about Alisanne all the time. Alisanne, you're beans. full of beans. Uh, <laughs> isn't that amusing? It is. It is full of beans. You're full just of full gas. of beans, Lyra. Oh my god. She is full of beans, though. She really is, though. Especially especially later on. Um, and then now the, the, the thought of this, right, makes him tear up a little. And Alice asks what's the matter. He's responds that it's stinging, but I don't know. Malcolm tearing up, thinking about his mom. That's another thing that reminds me a bit of Will. When Will's always... I mean, Will's sad about his mom a lot. He's not ready for this at all, right? Like, he's about to see something even worse. He's not even ready for this. He's just looking for signs of life out the window, and he gets the opposite. You know, last chapter, he was hoping to see a nun floating around inside of the Priory, but now he's seeing a real body floating around downstream, dead. He's like, what yeah. should we do, Asta? It is really sad because, like, he and Asta, they they can't decide what's the most respectful thing to do, and also like not to put themselves at risk at this moment. And I don't know, just poor poor Malcolm and and Alice, right? You know, they're not the only kids going through this natural disaster. There's obviously like the rest of their fucking town, but it's quite traumatic for all of them. Yeah, no kid should have to make these choices, these life or death choices, and. You know, respecting a body, and as we see it become such an important motif in the main trilogy, right, of someone's Mm -hmm. death being respectful and their soul being respected, like Lee and Yorick. That and also, I mean, that and especially Lyra, right? Lyra, full of beans and full of grace, as uh, Kate Bush would say, but she, you know, with Tony Macarios. No one else mm-hmm. was showing him any respect or his body any respect. Uh, they were terrified of what to do with the body. And those men, in a way, were, were willing to just sort of let it float downstream. But I was like, no, we gotta do the right thing and we gotta give mm-hmm. him a proper burial. The body does float away and Malcolm is ready to bring it inside. He's like, I'm gonna get it a proper burial. And Asta says to him, what happens to demons when people die? I don't know. Maybe her demon was small, like a bird, and he's in her pocket or something. Maybe he got left behind. But that was too horrible to think about. 
Ooh, some foreshadowing. Spicy. Interesting. Maybe he got left behind. But could it be foreshadowing for the future, too? Yeah, it could be for for his dark materials, right? It's kind of a nod, because we all kind of know. Oh, with Will. About it. Will, I mean, Will, but also, like, we, we see it when they go to the underworld, but also we know it happens when demons die. I mean, Lyra kind of saw that at about Malcolm's age, and she's like, oh, shit, they just disappear. Yeah, Malcolm hasn't, though. Not yet. Yeah. Well, for now, Malcolm decides to pack up what he can from the store and put it in the canoe, and Alice and he debate the... Why is Gerard after Lyra again? Malcolm brings up Jordan and Sanctuary again, and then Alice is like, I see, I see, realizes his whole game. She scolds him, saying, so you never actually meant to go back, and Mal was taking Alice so she could take care of Lyra, and she saw him gazing at the business cart in the boat when, you know, Mal thought she was asleep. So she kicks Malcolm justifiably so, inching toward him, and he picks up a stool, hiding behind it. He's like, I saw Alice <laughs> throw a chair. I can throw a chair, too. That's not really what happens in the text. I made that up. It's a defense. And she's so funny. She's like, and what are you gonna do with that, eh? Hit me over the head? I'd like to see you try. I'd Hush, hush, little one. Don't cry now. Alice has just lost her temper with that little piece of sewage over there, but not with you. My lovely, put that bloody stool down where it was. I haven't finished feeding her. And put another log on the fire. She doesn't even amazing. skip a beat. She's amazing. amazing. Um, queen of my life, you know, like her personality has not changed on that aspect. And Malcolm knows that he can't do anything but try to calm her down. And she's like, shut up while I think about what to do now. Uh, she's definitely the adult in this situation. His cuts reopened from all of this physical strain, like picking up the stool. And he and Asta quietly plan how to dodge around Alice's temper. He opens an orange juice, handing it to her kind of as a, a breakfast peace offering, and explains that Lyra's not safe anywhere, especially not with Gerard Bonvie or the Office of Child Protections around. And Lord Asriel loved her, so why shouldn't we get her to him? Alice is like, why can't we take Lyra to your parents' house? And he's like, their hands are full, and the CCD has already been there before. They have no defense. Alice thinks and asks, why not give her to her mom? And Malcolm's like, she started the League of Alexandria. Hello. I honestly don't think this is that good of a justification. Like, I secretly do kind of wonder, like, kind of devil's advocate here. But, like, no one has actually given me, in my opinion, like, a really, really good solid reason as to why they couldn't give Lyra to Mrs. Coulter, her mother. Like, yes, she's a horrible person, as we see later, like, a, a lot of the other things. And, of course, the League of St. Alexander is, like, pretty horrendous, as we all know, mm -hmm. and definitely harkens to Nazi times. But, like, all of the actions that Mrs. Coulter has taken, such as this, like, which might have been for the purposes of trying to find her daughter, just shows me that she's kind of willing to do anything for her kid. Like, yeah, she made poor choices at first, but she makes the right choices in the end. I mean, I'm... even before then, she's like, seems like she really wants to find her daughter and no one will fucking let her. And I mean, uh, uh, as somebody that knows a person that has like a narcissistic parent, <laughs> I know a person, um, but like, it, it's probably not great, but like, I don't know. 
it's yeah she just could have tried like why not let her and i think that falls to a lot of the sexism that she experienced not just then but also in her career right in general and uh the the idea that like this turned into a whole debacle when like you wouldn't even blink an eye if a man had a a bastard out of wedlock with some woman you know like that and the fact that her whole career is pretty much shattered because of it and she has to become this fucking gatekeep gaslight girl boss bitch to keep it up later it's interesting what if you just gave her the daughter i know i'm like none none of what like she does is justifiable right? right but i also nothing that anyone has done like yes like she could be a narcissistic parent and we see that she doesn't end up being a great mother to lyra later on but that's after having gone through like a lot of other circumstances too and i'm just like nothing within this book nothing within his dark materials has really shown anything to me as to like you know she made that split second decision perhaps at at the beginning of like i don't think i'm like soon after giving birth to lyra like i don't she doesn't didn't think she was ready to be Mm -hmm. a mother probably because there were a lot of other horrifying circumstances happening around that and like obviously that's not the best state for someone to try and make this like huge decision i just don't understand this is just just my opinion like there was not enough of a case made in this book or in his or towards the beginning of historic materials before everything that happens later on mm-hmm. as to why they could not have given lyra to mrs coulter as a baby yeah, no, I have no arguments with you, Eliana. I'm just saying that the books don't make the case for her being... No, not at all. Or this book, this book especially, what I yeah. mean, like at the time of Lyra's infancy. And I'd argue that the future books, so Serpentine even, uh, and The Secret Commonwealth just kind of make you feel more empathy, in my opinion, or sympathy, depending yeah. on who you are in your life experiences. And like, again, she does end up being... Not a great mother to Lyra during those times later on, but we don't know what she would have been like at this point. And I'm like, just because she was horrible, this is not a justification of anything, but she could be, She just because she was horrible to a bunch of other people's kids doesn't mean she would have been a bad mother to her own child. And it could have changed the course of her life. Yeah. It's like but a anyway. sink or swim thing. Anyways. That's that's just something that I wanted to like throw out there because I'm like Malcolm, you literally have met this woman for like a minute. Yeah, I mean she's crazy, but my god, like you don't Truly. know her. You're you're Metatron, you know. <laughs> well, Alice gives in. She sighs and she's like, "How are we going to find Azriel?" And he shows her the business card, saying, "We'll find a nice Egyptian to show us the way." She snorts and calls him a moon calf. I'm going to call you that. <laughs> what is that? I love that. You're a moon calf. A new calf born on the moon. She asks him why he didn't tell her about all of this planning. And he's like, well, I didn't really plan it. I just had a feeling. And if I had known, I would have taken Sister Fenella with me, he says. Yeah, fuck you, Alice. But also Sister Fenella. No, but like also like she was dying when we saw her last. Hmm. Alice changes her mind. She's like, you're not a moon calf. You're a gormless, staring (laughs) idiot for exactly the reason I just said. She's like, why didn't you ask me to go with you? And he's like, I didn't think of this till like last night when we were tied off to the tree. Uh, I I love this chapter. I think it gives us a lot of exposition on the bond between Malcolm and Alice. Like we said earlier with their opposing demons. It's the first chapter we get for them to speak freely with no interruptions whatsoever. 
and they're even scheming together by the end, but we still have these characterization bumps in the road they have to work with, right? Alice doesn't want to be pinholed into only being a caretaker and a mother. She wants to be invited to escape down the river in a dashing adventure, but not because of her skill in caretaking for an infant or for people, but because she wants to be wanted, for people to see her as herself. Simultaneously, she's good at taking care of others, and she knows that. It's probably from taking care of her siblings and her mom being the oldest daughter, uh, having to fill some of these gaps her mom probably hasn't always been able to fill as a single parent with three daughters. And she cares. She does genuinely care. Even when Malcolm is pissing her off, she she's out there wiping his face and getting the blood off his face. And likewise, Malcolm is trying to put on this big kid act, right, to prove himself, like, I'm so grown up. To Alice, and he doesn't want her to see that he's just a kid, him looking away in the mirror, choking up. Uh, watching their friendship develop is something we've seen Pullman accomplish in many ways, right? Like Will and Lyra. It, it, it falls flat in some ways for Will and Lyra, and it does fall flat for Alice and Malcolm in some ways too, but I think their friendship develops faster, stronger out of necessity with this direct mortal peril that they're put in and having to make life-changing decisions every moment. I think their bond by the end of the book is special. Uh, I have a few annoyances of Assault used as a plot device, as we've talked about, but I love seeing their relationship so raw, so early on, so awkward, so unsure, and still figuring each other out. Absolutely. And and everything that you said here, right, is is part of the strong characterization of Alice here. And I, I am also very interested in how Alice embodies a lot of that same parentified child aspect that Will does in the original trilogy. But as you said, she and Malcolm form this very strong bond. And it's not just, you know, the cats, the cat demons mirroring one another, but even like they, they do it a couple of other times too, where their demons are both birds, right? Both cooperating, scoping everything out. And yeah, as they, as they start to sink in with one another. Yeah. They get comfier. Synchronize is what I meant by sync. Yeah, I just realized we we're on a boat. We're on a boat. Uh, when I said sync, I meant S Y N C, not S I N K, which is hmm. perfectly possible in this context. M O U S E. Well, they aren't mice at this moment. The plan is to keep going downstream, keep out of Bonneville's way, and find Lord Azriel. Malcolm wipes blood out of his face again, and then Alice just forces him to just let her take care of it, bandage it up. She begins to list all the things that they should take with them, like pillows, blankets, and food and diapers. So he begins to gather them up, and then suddenly a dinghy goes by with two men rowing it. Neither are Bonville, though. They call to Malcolm, asking him what he's doing, and Malcolm quickly asks Alice to come to the edge of the boat with him. They tell the men they are Sandra and Richard, and the baby is Ellie. They're trying to get back home to their parents in Wolvercote. The men continue to push, asking why they're looting the pharmacy, and Alice starts to speak up, and Malcolm's like, no, 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 maybe not, Alice, let me take this, and he interrupts calmly and says, we're only taking what we need, and our father will bring us back to pay the shopkeep. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of uh, Malcolm's little child spy skills come into play here. Yes. But... I don't know, these people were kind of assholes. I get it that it's like a stressful natural disaster. and Maybe they know the pharmacy owner and are like legitimately concerned about them. But I'm also just like, what the fuck, dude? Mind your business. I'm like, civilization is over. Mind your business. I know, these kids are trying to survive right now. It's not like they're taking things because they're like, what, gonna fucking... 
Anyway. Listen, I'm telling you, if if civilization crumbles and you see me looting the Walgreens or the Target, mind your business, okay? I agree. I agree. Mind your business, that's all. They've got a fucking baby. And, you know, they, they buy some of the lie, right? I guess the lie is just their relationship and what they're doing, but also it's just like... As you said, mind your fucking business. And the, those people do give them directions to the emergency station in the town hall. Ten minutes later, they're back on the move. Well, that's nice. That that was a nice ending, that they weren't, like, <laughs> that, complete that was, assholes. Yeah. yeah. And Malcolm thinks the same. He's like, it could have all gone for worse. They were still alive, and they were moving south, and we move south, too, to the final chapter of this episode, chapter 17, Pilgrim's Tower. It's a quick recap of a lot of things we just learned, but yes. we're going to hang out at Pilgrim's Tower, the tallest tower in Oxford that George Papa Dimitri is staring off out of at the top of as Mal and Alice are kicking off into the waters. Yes. As you said, short recap episode, the budget ran out, so this is a filler. Um, yeah, it does start off with that, and I, I think it's really interesting that George used the children as bait for sexual predators, Papa Dimitriou is high in his own ivory tower, right? That that sort of thing of the university, detached from all of those drowning plebes around him. And I, I'm just like, to come back to earlier, you know, this guy's supposed to be good, and like, they're kind of trying to get Lyra somewhat in his care. I'm like, how the fuck is this guy a better choice than Mrs. Coulter for Lyra? Yeah, it's rough. Him and Ted Nugent obviously is the ring leader of all of this, of this madness of the circus. And it's the highest tower, like we said. So it's looking out at the water and the storm is crazy. It's cold enough inside. George is wearing a jacket. And he and Lord Nugent are waiting for Bud Schlesinger, a new Dane and an agent of Oakley Street that they hope will guarantee Lyra's safety for them. Like you said, adults suck. Uh, Malcolm and Alice are literally struggling, lying to people and authorities and keeping this little girl safe. And they're all like, huh, I guess we should have checked on Lyra. Huh, that's a good point. We should have headed over to the Priory when we saw it was raining. But here these twerps are, out here, these kids, keeping Lyra safer than the adults could have once more, just like Lyra and Will saving the world. Right, and like, there's position to be better but again they're like what if we used kids as tools to again lure pedophiles sexual predators and i'm like that seems like a bad idea first of all and hannah ralph agrees and the reason that they were late and haven't set out to try and secure lyra's safety is because they were waiting for bud who had news about that prophecy and so they're more interested in the prophecy and what Lyra can do than they are about Lyra's safety. And I think that just really shows that, I, again, they're not that much better in some ways than the Magisterium, in my opinion, in this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, again, how are they better than Mrs. Coulter? Because to them, Lyra's just another pawn. Yeah, watching, I mean, I think Hannah Ralph knows that too, obviously, because yeah. we wouldn't be getting yeah. the angle we're getting on this chapter if she didn't. And watching her realize, like, these men just play chess with people in numbers. People are numbers to these men. With uh, children. I, children, yeah. And she's, like, sickened by it a little bit. You know, even here, like, as they give her orders of what to do. I do like this line. The witches were a great power in these latitudes, and the alliances they made were costly but valuable. Uh, the importance of witches is interesting. He's really... 
put this importance on them, even in the small novellas, right? Serpentine has a lot of information about witches. Lyra's Oxford is focused on a witch in the end. Lots of witch stuff going on, so I'm glad that we get this as well. Mm-hmm. Nugent was eager to get the witches on their side, but his motivation was definitely because he was trying to keep as many witches as possible from joining the wrong side. As you said, which side is wrong? Which witch side is wrong? <laughs> You're fired. They discuss the authorities are requisitioning most boats on the water. Nugent says Bud will get here, though. As he says that, he spots Hannah Ralph outside in the flooded quad, covered in oil skins, waiting toward the tower. Adorable. George waves, but she doesn't see him. He says he'll go down to meet her. They join up on the first landing where Jesper helps her with her raincoat buttons. She's wearing salmon fishing waders, which belong to her brother. These are the- this is the greatest scene. I know. My favorite scenes- Controversially, one might be the hyena licking the puck. What's <laughs> wrong this, with you? And this. What is the, Is this another Donkey Kong? Oh my no, god. The other one, no, the other one's like art in the way that like disturbing things, right? Like weird weird shit is art. You know, the, and this one, this one's precious and I love this. They're, they're both completely different vibes. I do love this. Uh, so Dr. Ralph's brother lost a leg. And he wore a prosthetic one, and these are not easy to wear with a fake leg. Waders are similar kind of to our snow pants, Eliana. They're made of, like, neoprene or rubber or thicker waterproof material. So, like, she has to sit on the steps and beg George to help her get the waders off. So he has to, like, like an eight-year-old after playing outside in the snow for too long, sits on the ground and you pull at their snow pants to get them off. You remember these days of snow pants? Oh, adorable. Do you snow pants? I vaguely no, I don't. Th- I don't think. I don't know. I just was damp. <laughs> wow, it is an effort and layered. It is such yeah. an effort. I bet Jasper would have snow all over his face during this attempt if there was snow. But it's only water. Uh, it, they're they're like water snow pants. Interesting. interesting. I thought they were also kind of loose. I've I've seen I've seen them in shows. And I'm like that always seems so interesting. Like they they wear them. They go out in the river and like they'll like fish or maybe mm-hmm. do science while out there. What? Oh. Hmm. What kind of science do they do? Like, I don't know, gathering samples for the river and like from the river for like examining mm-hmm. the biology of the ecosystem. I I saw I saw someone wearing something kinda of like that in I guess it wasn't only waiters, not that specific kind, but in Cloak and Dagger. Okay. I think is one of I think that was the show. But there's other ones. They're hilarious either way. Love the concept of them. But yeah, so Nugent opens the door for them, offering Dr. Ralph some of George's brandy, and also to sit by the fire. George thinks it'll be good for her to meet Bud Schlesinger, and she explains that she came because of what happened at the Priory. Her neighbor, who had brought her over by boat, took her there to check in on Malcolm and Lyra. But the gatehouse of the Priory, as we all know, and many of the main bits had been destroyed and sunken, as well as the bridge, and we get a we get a body count. Seven nuns drowned, two are missing, and so is the child. Mm, but seven nuns drowned. Seven. I know. I didn't think about oh. the number. Holy. It is holy. It's so sad. It's so sad. I I think like that moment, like when I read this, the first time my heart sank, I was like, oh my god, all the nuns. He probably enjoyed that one, bastard. Yeah. But it's not just Lyra. 
Malcolm's also missing, and so is Alice, who was helping at the Priory. And this is what's giving Malcolm's parents hope. The men try to make sense of it, so they're like, so you think that this boy rescued the child and floated away with the kitchen girl? And they're like, are you sure that they have the child? Yeah. And <laughs> they had found the crib at the inn, but all the blankets were gone, which didn't make sense to Hannah. And Hannah also brings up Gerard Bonvie. She's like, you know, I kind of mentioned him at Dr. Alkaizy's, but you all spoke over me and tried to exploit a child spy instead. <gasps> Uh, so I didn't really have an opportunity to bring it up again, haha. And Ted Nugent sits forward and George is like, how does this fit in? So she explains Malcolm expressed fear of the man due to the demon's behavior, and the man tried to break into the Priory and claimed to be Lyra's father. Nugent says, oh yes, we know of that man. We had interest in him for a while. He was a scientist leading an elementary particle research, the Rusikov field. And also he wrote a theory about consciousness that sent the magisterium spinning. It stated there must be a particle associated with the field, and dust is probably that particle. Yes, and as we all know, because there is another trilogy that preceded this by like a decade, more than a decade, almost two, he was right, you know? Bonneville was right, um, and it's interesting that Bonneville was just like so revolting of a person, as we're going to find more about in a second that despite this very important discovery they just like were like let's forget he ever existed and name the particles after <laughs> that other guy and the field that he discovered even though he didn't i guess discover the, the particles because they do end up calling it the ruzikov particles right mm -hmm. yeah so they're just like let's just use his name for both <laughs> <sighs> nugent goes on saying the gist is that everything is material, matter is conscious. Bringing spirit into the discussion means the magisterium's likely keen to shut the guy up. George pipes in Gerard had been in prison for a sexual offense, and Nugent agreed that was part of his downfall. Marisa Coulter was involved, perhaps in testifying, he thinks, and now he's claiming to be Lyra's father. And, adds Hannah, Mrs. Coulter knows Bon V. She came to Hannah's house. She explains what happened and that Coulter clearly knew Bon V, but wouldn't admit it. She wanted to know the child's location, but didn't say it was her daughter. They're interrupted by the arrival of Budge Schlesinger. He's about 30 or so with his small demon owl. He asks if he's interrupting and Hannah says, no, no, she must be, and tries to leave. But Nugent's like, no, you need to stay, and he introduces them. He gives Bud the summary of her story, very concise, as Hannah notes, and George makes coffee. Bud brings them some information in return. Yes. He tells them... He gives a confirmation, right? We all kind of knew it, but he confirms that Lyra is indeed Mrs. Coulter and Asriel's daughter. No one else is involved. And that the witches of the Inara region... <laughs> ...heard voices in the Aurora that the child was destined to put an end to destiny. And... They don't know what that meant, and he doesn't either. Could be good, could be bad, but the main condition is that the child must do it without knowing that she's doing it. The Magisterium had heard of this prophecy through their own witch contacts and set to finding the child, which is when Lyra was taken into quote-unquote safekeeping. Yes, a refresher from the Northern Lights on why the witches can see through the Aurora's. Because the charged particles in the aurora have the property of making the matter of this world thin, so we can see through it for a brief time. 
Witches have always known this, but we seldom speak of it. Yeah, so I love about this prophecy. Bud says, yeah, like, they heard voices on the other side of the roar. He's like, I don't know. I think it's a metaphor. And we all know, <laughs> no, literally, like, they heard voices on the other side of the roar. <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny because he's kind of wrong about a lot of this stuff, right? Like, some of his information's right, but he's got a handful of things where he's like, ah, oh, the other prophecy, it could be about this kid. And I'm like, I don't I know mean- that it is. Yeah. Why would you just not believe that there are voices on the other side of the roar? Like, they're literally magic. It's not I mean, hard. they're flying in the sky in front of you, telling you this. Come on, dude. Yeah. Uh, well. Gerard, Gerard Bonneville. Bonneville. Bud knew <laughs> him in Paris. <laughs> Bud knew Gerard Bonneville in Paris and heard he'd come to the north and had asked around on him. He'd been released from prison for a sexual crime Lost his academic job, access to resources, the lab, libraries, pretty much everywhere that a scientist needs to work, right? And not only that, but he was kind of a pain in the ass to work with. He was demanding, obsessive, creepy, and his demon, well, his demon had four legs the last time Bud had seen it. So he says that he heard maybe Corin Ben Texel had something to do with the three legs. Interesting, interesting, because this whole time, of course... Melka's been like, oh, he must have done that to his demon, but it was probably after, you know, Coram's yeah. fight. It was Coram, the only father that I respect in this whole... <laughs> the only dad. Well, nope. There's the Hyena master. Hyena murderer. Well, no, that that was sad, but... <laughs> that was sad, but also it was in self-defense. <laughs> um, oh I, will, I will stand Coram Van Texel <laughs> till the day I die. My god. Bud continues on. Bonneville thought that he could just buy his way back into favor by bargaining with the magisterium and giving them the child. But Bud asks where Bonville might be now, and George is like, well, we have a theory that maybe he's chasing after the little boy and this other girl who have Lyra in their canoe. (laughs) It's a working theory. (laughs) It's like the truth, but also it sounds crazy. Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, that that sounds legit. And I mean, I guess that's that's what happens with someone like Bonneville. And he asks Hannah, where do you think that the children went? And she tells him about the time that Malcolm asked her about sanctuary and that if colleges still offered it to scholars, she told him that Jordan still had some form of it. Papa Demetrio confirms, right, something that we talked about last chapter, uh, that there is a Latin formula to invoke sanctuary through the master. <laughs> and Dr. Ralph doesn't think that they're going to make much headway in the current, and George says, you know, it's not going to work anyway because the baby's not a scholar, and I'm like, you take that back. She's full of beans. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Lyra is full of beans. Hannah asks, well, what if she were granted scholastic sanctuary? How safe would she be? The law has been tested safely in the courts, begins George, who's interrupted by Bud, who says Queen Tilda Vassera of the Inara tribe had a prophecy about a boy. The voices in the Aurora had spoken about a boy who had to carry a treasure to a place of safety. Well, I had no interest in a boy, so I clean forgot about it till you started talking about a place of safety. Sanctuary? Could this boy of yours be doing that? So, couple things here. Isn't it so interesting that they predetermined Lyra's destiny for her in scholastic sanctuary that that was a promise that she had to grow up to be a scholar 
uh, a promise that she would study, and that was what protected her, right? At Jordan. Um, but, like, she also is supposed to bring about the end of all destiny, so these people are trying to plan her destiny when she's literally, like, the killer of destiny. It is. And everyone's been trying to do that to Lyra for her whole life. Yeah, and Except I mean, that for, does I carry guess, through. The master. Right, the master. Plus the master. And the librarian. Those are the only, they're the only good ones. Uh, the, the master, the librarian, and Coram Van Texel. Yep. The John only Fa. people I stand. Yeah, John Fa. He's okay. A little ambitious, but I like him. This is a great passage, though, because this prophecy here is probably about Will, right? To get a treasure to a special place, the, the subtle knife. But it could also be Malcolm, because prophecy is always in the eye of the beholder, which is something very important to consider. And having a man like Bud in place giving these kind of prophecies is fun, because Bud is not a very serious character when you meet him. He's not like some mm-hmm. creepy... Oh, this is going to happen. The dark guy is coming and he's going to murder Lyra. He's not some creepy, like, monger of prophecies. He's just like, oh, I heard a prophecy once and it went like this. Isn't that funny? Yeah, and I think that it seems as though Pullman kind of likes playing with that idea of someone who has prophecies or visions like that and is kind of a little more down to earth, right? Like, he touched on it a little with... um the background, right, when we find out what Will's father, what what, what Joppery used to be like, and I think that the show interpreted that the way that they did, which is maybe in line with Bud. But also, Bud kind of gives me sort of Lee Scoresby vibes. That's so funny, because I started going Southern in that quote. Oh, yeah, maybe that's why. (laughs) He's got, he's got, I I mean, he does have that energy to him. He's kind of happy-go-lucky in a way, and kind of like, I just go and listen and bring the info back. Make my dollar. But I kind of, yeah, and he's not, you know, lovely, but, but also I'm just like, you didn't try, I mean, like, why would you not just note anything that happened in the prophecy, right? That could be important at some point. (laughs) Yeah, dangus. <sighs> anyway. Hannah confirms that this very well might be what Malcolm's doing, because that's the way he thinks. She calls him intensely romantic. Hmm. George interrupts this theorizing to assume that, well, Malcolm probably failed, has been carried downstream, <laughs> and is like, so what? what is Malcolm's plan C? <laughs> Alright, where does he go then? So the men again all look to Hannah. Who realizes, oh, oh, they expect an answer. (laughs) And she's like, well, I think that he would probably go to Lord Asriel then, regaling them of his visit to the Priory with Malcolm, and that Asriel had repaired and upgraded the canoe as well. And Schlesinger's like, oh, yes, I've seen Asriel and Chelsea. He is preparing to go north, but it might be too late. And Nugent pipes in, unless the flood delayed them, as, you know, natural disasters and bad weather tends to do. With, uh, travel. And last year, Ted Cruz. <laughs> oh my god. Topical. <gasps> oh, it is topical. Again, hello, historian, <laughs> hello, archaeologists and anthropologists in the future. Welcome uh, to Girls Gone Canon. I'm one of your hosts. Lord um, Nugent looks revitalized and lays out the plan. We find the children before Bon V does and use Bud's borrowed boat. He directs George to check in with the Egyptians and find some boats. He reiterates, the CCD is taking as many boats as they can. They will be concentrating on this exact task, and you need to do it better than them. No pressure. 
And to Hannah, he directs her to stop what she's doing and search for the children using the alethiometer. How will I keep in touch with you? She says. You won't, said Lord Nugent. <laughs> you won't? Whether we're successful or not, you'll be writing the history in due course. Go home, keep dry and safe, and watch the alethiometer. I'll find a way of keeping contact. Ah, and that's the end of chapter 17, which kind of a little parallel to Alice there in a way, right? She feels Malcolm brought her along to take care of Lyra, where Hannah's kind of feeling a little left out of the action, I'd imagine here. Yeah, it, he told her, go home, go on Twitter, just to right. wait for the live tweets Y'all from sure? the <laughs> Uh, I mean, hashtag find Lyra. <laughs> hashtag, yeah, that's what she's putting into the alethiometer, actually, though. <sighs> well, that that brings us to the end of these three chapters and the start of part two. Yes, I uh, I think the second half of the book is a banger. It, it literally slaps. Every chapter is so hard. Crazy shit happening, right? The the river flows more. Weirder stuff is about to happen. I can't wait till we get to that fairy island. That's some weird shit. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of things happen, and we've gotten a quick teaser of that, right? Uh, from the memory that Malcolm has of Corm Van Texel, saying that there are things in the water that had been disturbed, and things in the sky too. Mm-hmm. That's about to, uh, all those disturbances are about to come to the surface, literally. Yes, we'll be exploring the next few chapters next month. However, we do have a short discussion to follow. Our discussions cover the secret commonwealth uh, in regards to these chapters and just a couple spare thoughts we have. Eliana will be hanging out in it. She's allowed in the clubhouse this time. But if you haven't read the secret commonwealth, you can tune on out now. Come back in a bit. Uh, Come back next month. Hear the next couple chapters and we'll hear from you then. Yes. So I'm going to start off, right, with a little bit of where we left off in this talk about Sanctuary. Um, it's it's interesting that it's really being built up in these chapters, and especially in this book. Obviously, the book ends with Lyra gaining Sanctuary, but it's kind of shown to be this like really robust mechanism here, which makes it so horrible of how it's just so dismantled and revoked from Lyra later. Yeah, he's pretty blasé. They are, right? Like George and Nugent are when they say, oh, yeah, yeah, the courts. It's proven in the courts. It's impregnable. You can't, you know, nothing can happen to you if you invoke sanctuary. Yeah. You have to, like, be a scholar, though, I guess. And they're like, Lyra, you're not. I'm like, what the fuck? She's, like, studying. She's a student. How is this not mm-hmm. considered a scholar? Maybe I, I understand scholar seems to be, like, a formal title, I guess, kind of like a professor. But I'm like... Damn, she's studying, all right? Chill, she's not going to just become a scholar overnight. Going back to Asriel living in Chelsea, right? And growing up and being in the parliament at some point and being kind of a high society man in the aristocracy. I mean, it seems he wasn't 100% a scholar, right? Like he wasn't like, Mm -hmm. he wasn't a full-on scholar. And obviously Coulter wasn't allowed to be one. However, his parentage and his status at least should earn him kind of that in is and that's kind of what we see in a way but it's all about money in the end for a yeah. lot of places and it, it's really crushing it kind of reminds me of the little princess right mm. uh francis hodgson burnett 1905 girl gets brought to a pretentious boarding school after world war one her dad's loaded 
He ends up dying, leaves her nothing, and she's made to be an orphan and live above the school and then work her way through living there. And, like, treated like crap, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, Lyra's story goes a little differently, right? Like, she goes off, attack, dethrone God, the whole nine yards. Uh, leaves to find herself, which Sarah didn't have that agency or that opportunity to. But interesting to think of that, of, like, how everything is ripped away, like you said, from her in the secret commonwealth. And how horrible it is because it was such a fail-safe program. Yeah, it, it was her home and she's just taken from it. And this is, of course, that story of how Lyra gets to that home. And, yeah. Yeah. Bud Schlesinger showing up is really great. I like his character. I'm not sure where you are in the Secret Commonwealth, but have you seen him in the Secret Commonwealth already? I don't remember. I feel like I thought I remembered seeing his name. I don't think I've seen him yet, though, in the Secret Commonwealth. I think I've seen his name. Well, you'll get there eventually. Lyra visits him. Uh, he lives in Smyrna with his wife. And it, yeah. it, it's nice to see him, though. Like, he's really fun. He's a fun character and, like, light and jovial. And it's, like, uh, it's been a decade, you know, since he's, or, well, it's been a couple decades since he's seen Lyra. So he's probably in his 50s or so. And he just feels like a really nice, one of the old men. We could adopt him into our group of old men is what I'm saying. Okay, good. You know, he can good. sit with Coram. Yeah, he's fun. So something else that was uh, stood out to me, right, that I noted was strange to me is calling Lyra a little flirt as a baby. And I, I guess it's supposed to be regarding her attachment to Malcolm. And I'm just like, okay. Interesting. I want to die. <laughs> yeah, it does feel weird. I know earlier you and I were discussing that, like, Especially with the imbalance of childcare. Like, why? It feels specifically formulated. His relationship and bond with Lyra is specifically very carefully chosen and formulated, and it's not in a way that I like. Yeah. And that's how I feel about it. Same. That's how I feel about it um, as well. And, you know, I think we're just going to have to wait until the Books of Dust 3 to understand... And for Malcolm to die so that I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, same. I just don't know. I don't know what else he could be doing. I think there was some good, you know, there was this line in the episode today. We talked earlier in the second chapter in the pharmacy, uh, Asta and Malcolm discussing what happens to demons when people die. Maybe he got left behind. Obviously, that's huge foreshadowing for what happens later where Malcolm separates from Asta, right? Uh, but and obviously yeah. a, a past slash foreshadowing for Lyra and what happens in the land of the dead. Uh, but it also doesn't make me wonder, like, could it be added to the foreshadowing pool of does Malcolm die? I don't know. It, maybe uh, something that I was thinking of, right? When they were like, well, where is her demon? And they were like, I guess her demon could be a bird and could be in her pocket. Reminds me of... um. Lyra trying to explain to people like, "Oh, my demon's mm -hmm. not with me because it's a sm it's smoke, right? It's in yeah. my pocket." All the excuses and it, it she uses, yeah, to conceal. I think that about wraps up the discussion. I don't have a lot right now because we're just getting into this meat. I think yes. next week we'll have. Oh, there's going to be so much stuff next week to next talk month. about, or next not month. Next sorry, week. next. We month. will have a lot to talk about next week with Catelyn's chapters. Yes, in our A Song of Ice and Fire read-through, where we reread A Song of Ice and Fire point of view by point of view, we are starting a new 
point of view character next week, next month in March to pop March off with, and that is Cattle and Stark. So if you are listening to those, make sure to tune in. It's March 2021 again for uh, <laughs> and Future Chroniclers, oh future, future uh, scholars, if you will. But yes. until next month, at the end of next month, of course, we will be back with another LaBelle Sauvage episode. We're getting closer and closer to the end, to the finish line, which means we'll get to start the Amber Spyglass eventually. So stay tuned for more info on that. And of course, for our Patreon special episode for patrons in the Stranger $5 tier and above, every month you get an episode very special in that tier. Every other month, it's His Dark Materials. Every other other month, it is A Song of Ice and Fire. So this month, it is about Serpentine. Yes, and if you want to talk more about His Dark Materials, whether it's uh, Books of Dust or the original trilogy, you can, of course, again, subscribe to our Patreon for patrons $10 and above. That's the Thunder tier and up. You get access to our Discord, where we have many channels where people continue to discuss about both these series, uh, Historic Materials and A Song of Ice and Fire, as well as many other series that people feel like bringing up every now and then. Uh, Chloe referenced The Vampire Diaries earlier, and she'll spark a conversation about that. And and also Modern Family, she'll spark a conversation about <laughs> that too. Uh, and we also, of course, spark other conversations amongst ourselves and our modern family, our modern electronic family, via our uh, brunches and happy hours that we do once a month where we get on like voice slash video chat and hang out and sometimes we'll do presentations uh we'll ask people to do presentations on topics that they're interested in or uh sometimes jackbox games now yeah we contain multitudes first of all second of all i mean we even have a respectful thirsting channel and i think it's very respectful very clean very classy Yes. Well, make sure you tune in there, as Eliana said. And if you're not already, subscribe to us on the bajillion platforms we're available on. If you're a Spotify listener, an Apple podcast listener, a Google Play, an Audible, an Amazon, whatever you are, we're on it. Take a look. You'll find us. Yes. And... Thank you again, everyone, for having joined us this month for La Belle Sauvage. I have been one of your hosts, Eliana. And I have been another one of your hosts, Chloe. Goodbye. See you soon. <laughs>